0: Soldo, who writes the Substack Fisted by Foucault. Um, and Nick, you wrote a really outstanding series chronicling the color revolutions in Slovenia, Yugoslavia, Georgia, and Ukraine. Um, and in it, you sort of document um, the way in which you not just US state agencies, but also global NGOs collaborated to foment what I think it'd be fair to describe as kind of a hybrid Authentic grassroots and astroturfed um, uh, set of regime change uprisings, um, and there's um, certain patterns of tradecraft that you um, that you have um, discerned from um, from those four uprisings. Um, I think I wanted to talk to you about it first of all because I think understanding that history is critical to understanding the present U.S. involvement in Ukraine. Um, so I want to talk about that, and I also want to talk about how. Um, Those patterns have now become visible um, in the U.S. vis-a-vis a a domestic population, as in the U.S. has taken the lessons that it has learned, um, apparently, from its involvement in the color revolutions and is now um, using those um, techniques on um, domesticating the uh, American population, American citizens, and controlling our um, understanding of events in the world. Is that a fair way to, to describe what you've written about, Nick? Yeah. First
1: of all, thank you for bringing me on this podcast. I appreciate it. I want to congratulate the two of you for the great job you're doing with Public. Huge success, and it's having impact. With respect to the series that I've written and I'm still producing on color revolutions and regime change, your characterization is a fair one. It's something that Americans need to know about. Uh, for many reasons, and I hope we're going to get into as many of them as possible. And you did hit the nail on the head at the end of that because a lot of the techniques that have been perfected overseas were introduced to domestic shores not too long ago. So there are discernible patterns that one can pick up on to see when this type of uh, activism, using air quotes, is being applied to the ordinary American citizen.
0: Mm-hmm. So could you just go through, um, you you discerned 11 points. You don't need to go through all of them in detail, but can you just go through kind of the main um, ingredients to this formula that has been per- perfected in Eastern Europe? All right. So let me try to give it a bit of a
1: context for your readers to, uh, so your listeners, sorry, to understand this as easily as possible. In late two thousand. There was an article in the Washington Monthly, which is kind of like an insider political mag out in D.C. Uh, it was titled "This is This is Not Your um, This is Not Your Father's CIA," and they were discussing in the article how the United States was actively involved in the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic in Rump Yugoslavia, and it struck a triumphalist tone because the authors noted that. The way that the United States helped overthrow him, and not just helped by a little bit of assistance, but actually organizing it in several different facets uh, and areas, is that it ran counter to the traditional CIA method of using brute force uh, via a coup d'etat or an assassination, et cetera. So Serbia was the first real color revolution. And before I start this, I want to say something. You have people who are critical of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Some of them go far too far, in my opinion, where they give all agency to the United States. And this is important here because in color revolutions and regime change, oftentimes these regimes make it very easy for themselves to be overthrown. Case in point was Serbia. By the year 2000, uh, Yugoslavia, Serbia, basically, had lost three wars, every war that they were involved in, maybe even the fourth if you count Slovenia, which is only a 10-day war. They also lost the region of Kosovo, which is the cradle of their civilization, their heartland, basically every their entire medieval history comes from there. At the same time, punishing economic sanctions that were leveled against them twice first in the first half of the 90s and then in the the late uh 90s destroyed their economy destroyed living standards uh wiped out savings everything so the people who were frustrated with their continued losses on the military side uh joined up with the people who didn't like the regime whatsoever already and they made it very easy for them to overthrow the regime now when we talk about an overthrow The color revolution templates works as follows in those first sets of color revolutions. An upcoming election was on its way. Opposition forces were put together in the widest grand coalition possible, from the furthest left all the way to the furthest right, with the thinnest amount of commonality between them, basically the desire to get rid of the government, get rid of the regime. At the same time, the State Department would hold meetings with opposition figures in a foreign country, a third country, and help them organize. On top of that, there'd be a coordinated effort between the CIA, the State Department, and various NGOs. NGOs such as George Soros' Open Society, Open Society Institute, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and regime Change Central, the National Endowment for Democracy, AKA NED. And what these groups would do was that they would funnel their money into these new uh, NGOs whereby the senior staff of these NGOs would be trained uh, by other NGOs in other third countries. So what they would teach them is things like how to do uh, non-violence resistance, how to set up parallel polling, because, and that's key in the story because with parallel polling, what they would do is they would create a narrative that the election is fixed no matter the result, unless their team, of course, won. So they'd be able to dispute it from the first point. The most important thing here, though, is narrative control. In most of these regimes, opposition had very little to no media whatsoever domestically, locally. But when it comes to color revolutions, these NGOs, financed and trained by outside NGOs, by the State Department, by CA, etc., would be the only people that Western media would talk to about upcoming elections. And so it would create a rival narrative where outside of that country, everyone's thinking it's going to be fixed. These are the legitimate people versus what the regime is telling people back home. And then when the election would come about, naturally, the Results were disputed, and that's when all hell would break loose. Mm-hmm. So that's basically the template for the first uh, several color revolutions that succeeded.
0: Um, and can you talk specifically about how this was this foundation was laid in Ukraine? You wrote, when the war broke out, um, you wrote a, a, a persuasive piece, which I think has been vindicated by um, uh, events since then, um, about how while this was a war of hostility by Russia, it was very much um sort of invited almost by United States foreign policy for decades prior um that the writing was not only on the wall but it was this was very this was at one point even sort of a matter of conventional wisdom among <clears throat> the blob in d c that if you expand NATO outwards um eastwards um you will um Uh, provoke um, a Russian invasion or some sort of hostilities with Russia. Um, And those, um, so those chickens have come to roost now. Um, I don't know if that's a fair way of characterizing your argument, but can you talk about um, how U.S. involvement in Ukraine has sort of um, precipitated um, the current um, quagmire there?
1: Yeah, sure. There is two conflicts going on simultaneously in Ukraine right now. Russia did commit aggression against Ukraine by invading Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is an internationally recognized country with its own borders, its own sovereignty that's now being challenged. That is a fact. There will be Russian apologists who will say, well, because of this, the treatment of the ethnic Russians there, etc., etc., you cannot change the fact that this is aggression against Ukraine. But there's a larger conflict at play here and something that uh, political scientist John Mearsheimer out of Chicago agrees with as well is that this is also a conflict between Russia and the United States, where Ukraine is acting as a proxy force on behalf of American and Western interests. But these interests are, of course, U.S.-led. With the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the Soviets realized that their legitimacy in Eastern Europe was absolutely done. It was they were, they were broke. And so they had to pull their forces out. At the same time, there was a gentleman's agreement, and you can see this at National Security Archives. It's been out. I put it up on my substack where you can see communications from one side to another and concessions from the western side that NATO would not be expanded eastwards. This was disputed for a long time, but it's no longer in dispute. This was the case. So during the 90s, Russia suffered an immense collapse. Economically, Politically, security wise, socially, etc. And slowly NATO cre- uh, started creeping eastwards. It wasn't until Vladimir Putin got into office and managed to beat back the Chechens during the Second Chechen War in 1999 that he began to reassert Russia on stage. And this took some time. At the same time, NATO was already pushing eastwards, and they were looking how to effectively surround and neutralize Russia. And this is where two key players come in. The first gentleman is Strobe Talbots, who was Bill Clinton's roommate in university, out in college. He served as the key man on Russia policy during the Clinton administration. He wrote a book called The Russia Hand. And if you read what he wrote, you can see the lines form in there. You can see the hunger and the desire to push NATO right up to Russia's borders. The second one, and the more important one, uh, was Jimmy Carter's National Security Advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, the Polish man. He wrote a book called The Grand Chessboard around that time. And this was a story about how the United States could maintain and expand global hegemony. In the post communist era, he put a special um, emphasis on Ukraine. What he said about Ukraine is that if the West could detach Ukraine from Russia's orbit, Russia is no longer a global power. It's reduced to a Eurasian regional power. So, what happened in 2004 was that first attempt at a color revolution in Ukraine, which succeeded. It was called the Orange Revolution. Again, the people in Ukraine who were on the regime's side, they made it very simple. Significant corruption, uh, issues with democracy, standard of living, etc., etc., etc. And at the same time, people must understand that there is a very large segment of people, and it's grown since then, who have a pro-Western orientation in Ukraine. They consider themselves part of Europe not part of Russia. The further west you go in Ukraine, the more pronounced the sentiment comes, except maybe in a place like Odessa, which has its own unique little micro history. So in 2004 and 2005, the Orange Revolution succeeded. There's a very interesting UK documentary about a gentleman named Boris Berezovsky, one of the original Russian oligarchs, one of the one of the biggest thieves in human history. And mm-hmm. He bluntly stated in 2004, when he was financing the Orange Revolution, along with people like National Endowment for Democracy, Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, Open Society, and a whole other vast ecosystem of Western NGOs. He let the cat out of the bag and said Ukraine is the forward base for regime change in Russia. He tried to take Putin down and he had to go into exile. And his life's mission was about regime change in Moscow. And he basically admitted that's the actual point. The Orange Revolution succeeded initially, but failed due to infighting by these pro-Western forces. And pro-Russian politicians got back into power until the Maidan happened in 2014. This was, we could call it another color revolution, but this one had more staying power, as that that's the regime that's been in power in Ukraine ever since, uh, regime in the sense of pro-Western versus pro-Eastern. And so what I wrote uh, a few hours before the Russian invasion launched, not that I predicted it, not that I was convinced it was going to happen, but the most important thing is that the second Russian army boots stepped on Ukrainian soil beyond the line of demarcation in the Donbass back in February last year, the Americans already won their main objective. The main objective they had in this was to strip Russia away economically and politically from Europe in order to fully bring Ukraine into the Western orbit to make Russia a regional power degraded to that from the status of a global power. And what the the West did, the American West did, is they basically boxed Russia into a corner. They gave them two options. You either don't invade and watch Ukraine become a NATO country where they could put in ballistic missiles. Anti uh, uh, ABM, uh, sorry ABMs that can intercept Russian nukes if they get launched, and which would defeat the concept of nuclear primacy for the Russians. Or the Russians can move in, and they lose all of Europe. They lost Nord Stream. They've lost a lot of business with Europe.
0: So, is it fair to say, or is it is it more complicated than this? That this policy uh, on the part of the United States and the European Union of expanding NATO. Um, eastwards, has been explicitly aimed at precipitating regime change in Russia. Is it that straightforward, or is it more complicated than that?
1: It's 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 that straightforward, but there are a couple of fine points that I have to mention. Uh, when Putin got into power, he asked if Russia could join NATO. He was willing to do it. It was a very pro-Western orientation at the time, and he got rebuffed instantly by, I think it was... Was it Robertson or was it uh, Rasmussen from Norway? I'm not sure. But whoever the Secretary General of NATO was at that time. Now, from 2000 to roughly 2004, a lot of Western leaders were actually happy that Putin was in power. The reason was that they looked at him as someone who could straighten that country out from the disaster of the 90s and create rule of law. Uh, protect foreign investments in the country, someone that they could do business with. This went sideways almost immediately. The first thing that Putin did when he got into power in 2000 is he called a meeting with the oligarchs. There were seven of them at the time. This was televised. And he said to them, gentlemen, you've robbed this country blind. You've stolen everything that could be stolen, whether it be oil, nickel, aluminum, gas, uh, media, et cetera. I'm going to make you a deal. Here's the deal. If you stay out of politics, I'm going to let you keep your money and your businesses. If you try to meddle in politics, you're going to go to prison. The first man, uh, I got his name, he was a media baron. He packed up his bags even before the meeting was over and he flew out to Spain and no one's heard of him since. He lives a nice life in sunny Marbella on the the Gold Coast, on the Cote d'Azur. Uh, Cosa del Sol, sorry. The second guy was Boris Bezovsky, which I mentioned, the Danny DeVito-looking PhD in uh, applied mathematics. Brilliant guy, genius. What's interesting about him was that he was the one who pushed Putin in to be a successor to Yeltsin because he thought he'd be able to control him from behind the scenes. Putin turned the tables on him. He quickly left uh, and ended up settling in the UK. He ended up uh, also... Uh, supposedly hanging himself sometime around 2007, I forget which. But Wierzovsky was not a guy that the West looked on fondly just because he was so shady. He wasn't a guy that the Americans could do business with whatsoever besides Neil Bush, uh, who actually ended up doing some business with him under the cover of Education Software. And it's in that documentary I mentioned as well. The key turnaround was when Vladimir Putin went after Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Mikhail Khodorkovsky was the owner of Yukos Sibneft, huge oil company out in Russia. Mikhail Khodorkovsky did a lot of work with UK and American interests in oil, a lot of joint ventures. Um, And he decided to make a play for political power. And that's when his plane got taken down. He got thrown to prison for several years. But he was a darling of the West. What you, know, you noticed at this point was that media in the English-speaking world and in Western Europe as well, that's the moment that they started changing their reporting on Putin. He went from he's a tough guy, might not be the best at democracy, but he's someone we can do business with because Russia needs to be straightened out to this guy's a fascist, this guy's going to do the most worst things possible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was at that point Putin started to become a bad guy. What made Putin a really bad guy was in 2008, when the short war in Georgia in the Caucasus took place, when Mikhail uh, Shevardnadze, who was put into power during the Rose Revolution, a color revolution, a few years prior to that, decided to try to liberate some occupied territory in northern Georgia, violating an international ceasefire, which, uh, which triggered the ability for the Russians to pour over the border and kick the shit out of the very undermanned and undersupplied Georgian army. So at that point, Putin became an aggressor in the eyes of the West, even though the EU itself admitted that Russia had every right to enter that territory because it violated international uh, international treaty on peace or whatever. I'm not sure the specifics. But there was a gradual progression where Putin went from a guy we can do business with to this guy's not really good, this guy's working against our interests, this guy's an aggressor. And then 2014 came, and and we know the story from there.
0: So you have the fall of the Berlin Wall, and then you have this period of liberalization in Russia, the time when Matt Taibbi was there. Um, You have shock doctrine, um, you have this um, fantasy of remaking Russia into uh, this kind of laboratory of free market capitalism um, under Yeltsin. Um, And then... You have Putin and the sort of the 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 Washington consensus at that point. If I'm not getting it wrong, was um, was to uh, was to not provoke Russia, was to not expand NATO eastwards. It wasn't until they realized that this project had failed and that the new uh, leader of Russia. Um, was hostile to their interests and um, not on board with this. Um, this um, well, I suppose by, by then he couldn't be on board with the free market liberalization because the whole thing had collapsed. It was at that point that they started to um, embrace this, um, this uh, doctrine of moving uh, NATO eastwards, or am I getting the timeline wrong here?
1: Well, it's the, the, the NATO was already moving eastwards prior to Putin uh, getting into power. And this Even really, really scared questions. Excuse me?
0: Even during that period of market liberalization? Even
1: during that period of market liberalization, they were just moving ahead, uh, tepidly at first, then quickly after that, because they just saw how weak the Yeltsin regime was. Uh-huh. Market liberalization there was very interesting because you had gentlemen like Jeffrey Sachs, who seems to have done a 180 since then, but he was one of the Harvard boys okay. participating in the privatization schemes out in Russia. Uh, I'm going to recommend something for your audience. I know, I, I think I can gauge that a lot of your audience is into Adam Curtis. Adam Curtis put together a seven-part documentary series a few months ago that was released on the collapse of the Soviet Union and the disaster of the '90s. It's called Trauma Zone. I actually wrote a review on it. It's absolutely brilliant, and unlike any other Adam Curtis documentary series, there's no voiceover. It's all images, but it's absolutely brilliant, and you'll see. The natural progression in the degradation of the communist system, its collapse, privatization schemes, and what came out of it, like the growth of the oligarchs, the rise of violent crime, the rise of mafias, etc., etc., etc. The the events that turned Russia against the West happened in 1999 when NATO bombed Rump Yugoslavia and detached Kosovo from Serbia. This is key because unlike Croatia, Slovenia, and Bosnia-Herzegovina, those are republics that had the right to secession. Kosovo was an autonomous province within Serbia. It had no legal right to secession. So Evgeny Primakov who was the one of the last prime ministers under Yeltsin, he was actually on his way to Washington, D.C. in a private pl- a jet over the Atlantic. He was going there to beg for some more money, and they're going to hammer out the details there because Russia needed loans. He defaulted on his debt in 1998, the year prior. And it was while he was in the air, he learned that NATO started bombing Yugoslavia, and that's when he famously turned the plane around and moved back to Moscow. The thinking was this. If the Americans are going to occupy Kosovo, put their forces there, detach an integral part of that country from the rest of it, they can do the same thing to us. And so that's when the Russians realized we gotta get this drunk idiot Yeltsin out of power and we gotta put someone in from the security side who's gonna be able to restore Russia's ability to defend itself.
0: We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.